This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome to the edge of this galaxy where we're going to talk about a special star trek book on today's literary treks hi i'm your host bruce gibson but i don't do this alone of course it's got to take two of us to talk about star trek books please welcome dan gunther who's always here and supporting and reading with us hey bruce good to be on the show again as usual talking about i think a pretty special novel this time around you know what i don't know if you know this dan but there's a new star trek series out what why am i always the last to know these things (laughs) i don't know maybe because you're in canada and you don't have cbs all access you're looking in the wrong place ah well we do actually have a way to watch it so yay we're we're happy up here in canada too (laughs) (laughs) thank goodness for space and crave tv yeah (laughs) So, uh, yeah, today's feature, we're going to be talking to author David Mack about his Discovery novel, Desperate Hours. So two days after Discovery premiered, his novel hit the stands. And uh, like me, Dan, I'm sure you jumped right in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I picked this one up and blew through it. And I mean, spoiler alert, we're going to be talking to the author, but I, I think it's fair to say i absolutely loved it uh i'm really enjoying discovery and this novel is a really great supplement to that show so you know if you haven't read this novel and you're watching discovery and you're enjoying it you should pick this one up because it gives a really unique perspective on the show so yeah definitely loved this one yeah at this point in the recording we've seen the first three episodes of discovery but i feel like i've seen four because i count this novel as almost being like another episode so i feel like i've had some extra discovery besides those three episodes because this feels just right it fits right in Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and gives some really great uh backstory to basically where we find the characters in the first episode of discovery so some pretty good stuff there And I guess some of you probably know that I really do like Discovery because I'm on the Live from the Edge show where we talk about Discovery just like 24 hours after it premiered. So um, 
if you really want to know what I think, you can always check me out there or check out what Dan and I are saying in the Babel Conference because we're always talking Discovery. So, but let's go on to the news before we get into that feature about Discovery. We've got two new covers to judge. Now, if Matt Rushing were here, he'd start singing about the covers. So we're not, he's not here, so we're not singing. So let's go right into the first <laughs> cover. <laughs> we have a new Star Trek Titan novel coming out, and it's called Fortune of War. And this is written by, hmm, David Mack, the same guy who wrote the Discovery novel. What's a coincidence? <laughs> we got to have that guy well, this on one, again? Jeez. We, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> If he wants to come on. But this novel's coming out on November 28th. And Dan, I have a feeling we already judged this cover before, didn't we? Well, we did indeed judge it and found it wanting. Uh, The cover that was revealed a few weeks ago was gorgeous. But in a weird kind of little snafu, they had the wrong ship on the cover. They had the Akira class. Uh, But they've gone back. They've redone the cover with the correct ship. And added actually this really cool exploding planet in the background that wasn't there before either. So, you know, really kind of went all out and made a really great cover for this novel. Yeah, I figured that's either an exploding planet or a big egg Hmm. that's cracking open with light coming out of it. But no, I think you're right. Is this a crossover with New Frontier, uh, maybe? Hey, Ah, could be. Deep continuity reference in the novel verse there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I said a big egg, I didn't even think of that, but probably subconsciously I was. (laughs) (laughs) And if you guys haven't read New Frontier, read the series and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. But no, I like this cover. It's in keeping with the other Titan covers. And it's a it's a different angle of Titan that I don't think we've really seen before. Yeah, it's a little bit more face on. We haven't quite seen that that angle before. I mean, Titan's a gorgeous ship and I I kind of do have to say I miss a lot of the more character centric covers that we used to get, but this one, it's beautiful. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having this one on my shelf because it's a gorgeous cover. That it is. That it is. And I will say that the uh, registry number is very visible. It's NCC 80102. I'm 80102. And the, it sounds like a, a zip code to me. And I looked it up. It's Bennett, Colorado. <laughs> I don't know if there's any connection between the two, but uh, Bennett County, Colorado, right out, you know, east of Denver. So anyway, you might be onto something there, Bruce. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either, but I do know that we have another cover. And uh, this one's coming out November 13th, just a couple weeks before the Titan novel. And this is a Deep Space Nine Evella. Is that how we say it? E-novella, E-novella, say. yeah. <laughs> E-novella. And so this means you can only get it as an e-book, and it's shorter than a regular novel, and it's called I, Constable. I, the Constable. It's I, the Constable. And guess who's on the front cover but Odo himself. <laughs> now, I just said I really liked the older uh, character-centric covers. And, man, this one is, it definitely qualifies. And it is really cool. We've got Odo dressed as like an old-timey gumshoe detective here uh, with Quark the bartender in the background. And... Man, I have to, I love everything about this cover. When it was released, uh, Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman shared it 
on their Facebook. And when I first saw it, I was, I had to tell them I was just in love with this cover. It is grade A cool right down to the font for the title. Like everything about this cover is just really cool. It is. I love this cover. It's definitely a Odo spy novel cover. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so great. And we did, we did actually also get the back cover. Well, I guess it's an ebook, so it's not really the back cover blurb, but the publisher's description which sounds really cool as well. With his Starfleet assignment temporarily on hold, Odo needs a distraction. He welcomes Chief O'Brien's offer to loan him some of the action-packed books that both men relish, tales about hard-boiled private eyes, threatening thugs, and duplicitous dames. Then Quark suddenly goes missing during a hastily planned trip to Ferenginar. His concerned friends on Deep Space Nine feel that Odo, as the station's former chief of security, is uniquely suited to track Quark down. But once on Ferenginar, Odo learns that Quark is trapped in the seamy underbelly of a criminal enterprise that could have been ripped from the pages of one of O'Brien's novels. To find the bartender, Odo discovers that he must rely not only on his law enforcement background, but his knowledge of all things noir. I'm excited. I like these. You know, Paul and Terry write great e-novellas about Quark, and now we've got Odo in this. I have a feeling this one's really going to be a fun, quick read. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And obviously, you know, taking after the pattern of the Mickey Spillane novels that Odo liked in the series, you know, um, I, the jury being the most famous one, I, the constable, obviously kind of a riff on that title. So I'm really curious to see what they have in store here. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I think everybody will know what we think because when the book comes out, we're going to review it. Of course. (laughs) That's what we do. We review all these things that come out, just like Star Trek Discovery, Desperate Hours. And I say we go right into it because there's a lot to cover. I agree completely. So we have a new Star Trek series. I don't know if anybody's heard about it, but it's called Discovery. And... What's unique about Discovery is it was followed two days later with an original novel based on that series. It's not a novelization on the pilot episode or any other episode. This is actually an original story to Discovery. And that book was written by David Mack, and it's called Desperate Hours. And so Dan and I would like to welcome David to the show. Hi, David. How are you doing? Pretty good, and I'm really glad to be back. It's always fun talking with you guys. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show. We're really happy to have you here. Glad to be here. Yeah, I've been waiting for you to come on and do this show for quite a long time. (laughs) I think uh, we heard earlier in 2017 that you were doing this book, or maybe we knew even before that. I think it was announced last year, in fact. We announced it in September of 2016. I believe we made the announcement at Star Trek Mission New York. Um, The deal was in process for a couple of months before Star Trek Mission New York, which took place in October or September of 2016. I can't remember which month. I think it was September. And uh, we'd been negotiating the deal over that summer. And at the time, we had thought it was going to be this crazy rush job, and I was going to have to crank out a novel over the summer, and there were going to be all these hoops we were going to have to jump through to have it out in the fall. And then it turned out the show wasn't premiering last fall. And They said, well, we're going to premiere in January. And I thought, well, I'd still have to really work fast to get this book out, you know, get it written in a matter of months and get it through production in time for the new year. And then the show got delayed again. 
and finally they you know they said may and then finally they gave up again they went uh september 2017 so a, a full year's push from where we originally thought we were going to see this book so it's been a long time coming but in a certain sense that time was needed by everybody involved the show needed that time to become the show it needed to be and i needed that time to write the right novel um, because we started out with a lot of false starts a lot of ideas that didn't pan out and as the writer's room changed its ideas i had to change my ideas so the delay works out i think for the best i think we've got a better show because of it and i know i wrote a better novel because of it so how did you even get involved wasn't it brian fuller that reached out to you or had the idea to have someone reach out to you well the way it sort of happened was that kirsten Beyer, fellow star trek novelist was hired onto the writing staff as a staff writer that decision was made by the executive producers I believe in January of 2016. And I didn't find out about it officially until about February of 2016. With Kirsten in the room and with her experience in books and publishing and her general knowledge of Star Trek, she became the logical person for the producers to turn to as a liaison between the show and publishers such as IDW Comics or Simon & Schuster for media tie-in materials, and to a certain extent, also for computer and video game products and mobile game products that are being developed uh, in tandem with Discovery. Kirsten became the point person for all of that. So when the time came that they were ready and they felt they were ready to start moving forward with the development of original novels, they asked Kirsten, who do you think is the right person to write the first original novel that will come out hopefully right around the same time as the show. Who do you think would be the right person for that job? And, and was that you? Thankfully, that was me. <laughs> I was actually the first one called and not being a fool, I said yes, because uh, while it stung a little bit that I did not get uh, invited to the dream job of a lifetime, I uh, quickly got over that and salved my bruised ego and decided that I wanted to be a team player and I wanted to do whatever I could to contribute to the show and to be useful to the show and to Kirsten. So Kirsten recommended me for the job. It was offered to me, I accepted. And then began the long collaborative process through which we developed uh, a series of stories. The first two, as I think I mentioned earlier, had to be jettisoned because the show started in one direction and they had one set of assumptions and then after uh, a couple of false starts, we had a request that filtered down from Brian Fuller. After we'd given up on our first two attempts, the first two were ideas that would have been stories about Michael Burnham in her youth, either as a child or as an adolescent, uh, adapting to life on Vulcan and seeing some of these formative events from her life, the attack on the Daktari Alpha, uh, research outpost, the bombing incident at the Vulcan Learning Center. Um, and eventually these ideas were, they decided they wanted to keep them for the show. And they also weren't 100% sure where they wanted them to go yet. So they didn't want to hand them off to a tie-in writer. They wanted to hang on to them until they were sure that they knew what they were doing with them. So at that point, when we were on to concept number three, 
and Brian Fuller at this point was still attached, he sent a request to me via Kirsten saying that what he would like to see as a new concept, as a new story basis, is one that is a crossover with the Shenzhou and the Enterprise under Captain Christopher Pike. And the implication, although it wasn't overtly stated, the implication was that he wanted a storyline that would give us a reason to put Michael Burnham together with Spock to explore the family history, the dynamic, and what this peculiar interaction, this intersection of their lives means to both of them. So that was all the direction I was given. And from there, I had to try and conceive of a story that I felt was epic enough that it would merit the involvement of two hero starships. A hero starship is what I call the ship that is, you know, the star of your show, or in the case of Shenzhou, even though it, spoiler alert, doesn't make it out of the first two episodes, um, it's still a hero ship for all intents and purposes. So I said, okay, what could be a story that merits having both of these ships and both of these very illustrious crews come together over one adventure? And I wrestled with this and it was driving me crazy about a year ago because I didn't have a story. And it was right around this time last year at New York Comic-Con that I asked fellow Star Trek and Star Wars author John Jackson Miller, what do I do about this? I, I laid out my dilemma. I said, John, what, what do I do? And he said, that's easy. He says, the problem is you're trying to put them on the same side at the beginning. He says, start them out as adversaries, have them both be right, and have them come together and be allies at the end. I went, oh, of course, the classic superhero team-up paradigm. Why did I not see it? He goes, because you don't write enough comic books. <laughs> so I took that advice and I used that as the new jumping off point. And once I applied that simple bit of wisdom from John Jackson Miller, the story came together very quickly. I, I Now I suddenly understood the dynamic. I saw the rising plane of action. I saw the threats. I saw the act one turn point. I saw the act two turn point. I understood how it was all going to fit together. So I started putting together this outline and that's how desperate hours happened. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because about the two different crews, because I was actually surprised that Captain Pike was so readily, look, we're, we're going right into the book, everybody. So if you haven't read it, uh, stop now, go read it and come back. Captain Pike follows Admiral Anderson's order to go and basically wipe out this civilization of 300,000-some thousand, yeah, people. And Pike didn't seem to have an issue with that. I mean, Giorgio, Captain Giorgio is actually, you know, no, we got we to try for I would disagree with that characterization. Pike does not like it one bit, but he's a soldier, and he'll carry out orders because he understands it's been spelled out to him what the stakes are. There is essentially this seemingly unstoppable alien juggernaut on this planet. And if it gets off this planet, there are several other worlds nearby with much higher populations, much denser populations, uh, far more established industrial centers that are all going to be at risk if this thing gets off this planet. They would rather, the Federation would rather sacrifice 300,000 colonists on this planet than lose 3 million or 3 billion on the next couple of worlds in line. Pike doesn't like this. He's not thrilled about this. 
but he will do what he has to do because he is a, a soldier, he is a Starfleet officer, he'll carry out his orders. What I think is the curious bit about the dynamic between him and Giorgio, however, is that he recognizes that Giorgio is a senior commander. He may have the bigger, better, newer, fancier ship. She's got 20 years on him, easily. And she is the senior commander on site, and he recognizes that. He has the more powerful ship. She's got the longer track record. So do you think he was hoping she would step up, uh, be more senior, and um, having having it prevented, having him prevent doing that? Like, is she, do you think she's, he's kind of expecting she's going to resist it because obviously Admiral Anderson went after Pike because he knew Georgia wasn't going to do it. And maybe he was hoping she would figure a way out of it. Well, look at how effective Giorgio is in the book at dissuading Pike from carrying out those apocalyptic orders. She talks him down at least twice. And finally, in the end, he brings her around when, you know, they seem to think that everything else has failed the operation to the Leviathan seems to have failed. They're running out of time. The Leviathan is coming up to get them. At that point, she accepts, okay, if there is no other way, we do the ugly thing. We do what has to be done. But she talks him down off of the ledge at least twice. On some level, I think that implies that Pike was, A, hoping she would and was looking for a reason to not have to pull the trigger on this yep. uh, because he doesn't like it. I mean, he and Georgia, what they both have in common is that they are people who have seen the ugliness of war, of combat. They've lost people under their command. Neither one is in any serious hurry to see any more lives lost on their watch. And I think that the fact that she is able to just through negotiation through just talking to him, the fact that she's able to get him to stand down twice, that tells you something, that Pike, on some level, really doesn't want to do this. I think it also says a lot about Admiral Anderson, too, and how he views Giorgio, that he didn't just come out and give these orders to Giorgio. He seemed to know that, I don't know, there was something wrong with that, or at least Giorgio would, would see something wrong with that. I, th I found it very interesting that... He wasn't in the mood for an argument. Yeah. <laughs> and and the way she learns about these orders is from Pike, and that struck me as like, wow, this Admiral is... A passive-aggressive dick. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> a, he's a passive-aggressive dick, and uh, I base that on how he was written in the two-part pilot. He comes off to me as a passive-aggressive dick, so that's how I wrote him. Um, and the other thing, too, is that you see as you get later into the book, and he does end up calling Giorgio on this, he says, okay, you have done exactly what I expected you to do. You have thwarted my orders as the senior commander on site. So I'm going to just turn this around on you. Yes, okay, fine. You are the senior commander on site. So these are your orders. I'm giving them to you directly. And if this does not get carried out, and if that Leviathan does get off that planet, I want you to know I'm holding you personally and solely responsible as the senior commander on site. So she gets away with it twice, but after twice, Anderson steps in and says, okay, but that means if this goes wrong, if you're wrong, you own this. This is all you now. 
And that's one of the, that's a bad position for anybody to be in. When somebody above you goes, if this goes and turns into a sandwich, you own it. So, okay. Speaking about the, the matchup of the crews. So what about the other matchups that you did? I mean, what surprised you most about matching up Spock and Burnham and also, um, Una, because we, we're carrying Una name over from the Legacy series for number one, right. Una and Saru. Una and Saru, I think, was one of those revelations that came to me uh, during the drafting of the outline to a certain extent, but even more when I sat down to execute the story. I went back and I sort of researched who number one was, what were her primary attributes, what do we think of when we think of number one from the cage, and she's tall and she's statuesque and she's cool and not terribly emotional. She's analytical and logical. And we had this whole backstory about her being of human biology, but raised in an Illyrian culture, which in a way makes her a parallel to Burnham. Burnham is a human by biology raised in Vulcan culture, both of which have similar traditions of mental discipline, pacifism, logic, uh, educational conditioning, mental conditioning, and yet the results are very different. Burnham still continues to favor her human side, whereas number one, Una, continues to display an affinity for her Illyrian upbringing. And we find that this is something that Saru responds to, and that in a way she responds in an almost Kelpian manner to his way of thinking. She is nonviolent. She doesn't trigger his threat ganglia the way other threat predators do when he first meets them. He can just sense that she does not have this predatory aspect to her nature, that she is by nature more of a pacifist. Part of it is probably her vegetarian diet. Part of it is probably just the way she comports herself when meeting with new people. He probably also likes the fact that she's tall for a member of her species uh, because Saru is so freakishly tall compared to his shipmates. So he's dealing with her and he finds in her immediately, like from the moment they first meet, an instant rapport. They are simpatico. He gets her, she gets him. Uh, she understands how to make him feel at ease. Everything she does makes him feel understood, respected, appreciated. Everything she does and how she interacts with Saru is everything Burnham does not do. Burnham acts superior when she deals with him. Burnham acts sarcastic with him. Burnham triggers everything about Saru that can be triggered. She triggers all of his fear responses. He feels that Burnham is dangerous. He doesn't get that feeling off number one. Number one is safe. She is dependable. She is someone who will protect him, not attack him. Uh, he's not in a state of rivalry with her the way he is with Burnham. And so what I found was that as I was developing this, I realized what was happening with Saru and Una is that after seven years on Shenzhou, where he has been in a constant state of rivalry and uh, mental conflict with Burnham, trying to win the favor and attention of Giorgio, the captain who sort of doubles as their parental figure. They almost have a sibling rivalry, Burnham and Saru. He suddenly finds himself dealing with someone who just treats him properly in a way that he doesn't feel he's been treated for a very long time. 
and he immediately gravitates to Una. Uh, he gets from her the approval, the understanding, the, uh, the mentorship, the camaraderie, everything that he has wanted from Giorgio, everything that he might have hoped for from Burnham as a peer, he gets from Una. And as a, as a result, he very quickly finds himself infatuated with her. He realizes if she were a Kelpian, I would fall in love with her. He absolutely adores her. He hero worships her from moment one. And I thought that that was an important thing to show is that he has this side of him that is capable of love, of devotion, of adoration, that he is not just a nervous Nelly. He's not just, uh, you know, this, you know, flight or, you know, fight or flight response type thing, that there is more to him. And we see this in his rage when he gets passed over for promotion. Saru very quickly became my favorite character to write just because I realized there is so much uh, richness to him. There are so many layers. There are so many deep aspects to his personality, especially with the backstory about him being passed over. Like he went through Starfleet Command, uh, Starfleet Academy. He was trained on the command track. He has done his time in the junior ranks. He's come up the hard way. He thought he was going to have Giorgio as his mentor to guide him up through the ranks and guide him into command. And instead, starting seven years before the Discovery pilot, suddenly Burnham comes aboard as a favor that Georgiou grants to her old friend, Ambassador Sarek. And suddenly Burnham, out of nowhere, is the favored child. Because, you know, you've got two human women, they naturally gravitate to each other, they're the same species, they're the same gender, yada, yada, yada. And suddenly poor Saru is frozen out. He's got no emotional connection. He's adrift. He's struggling to be noticed. He's struggling for approval. And he's constantly getting the short end of the stick. So when he finally gets somebody who appreciates him, he lights up. It's sort of a way of glimpsing at the potential that we're going to see in Saru starting in episode 103. Put Saru in a situation where he is respected, where he is appreciated, where he is given the proper power and authority that he has earned, and Saru will flourish. He is a fantastic officer, a fantastic leader waiting to happen, but his potential was diminished because he was overlooked. He was unfairly overlooked, he was passed over, he didn't get the chances he deserved. Uh, so that's what the whole thing with Saru and Una was about. And then Spock and Burnham, well, we can go into that if you want, that's a whole other can of worms. I'm going to go ahead and assume that anybody who's reading this book and listening to this podcast is also watching the show and caught up to, you know, where where we are and stuff. At the time of this recording, episode three has just aired. And one thing I want to mention is this book gives such a great context, like you said, to that episode in particular, because of this initial um, competition between the two of them for the first officer position to see that role reversed now in the series is really fascinating. Exactly. Because this is the role that Saru believes he was meant for. He had put in all his time, all this effort, and you had Burnham come up behind him in the ranks. And I think I addressed this in the book. He has a moment where he was even able to rationalize it and emotionally cope with it when she caught up to him at the point where she was a senior tactical officer, he was the senior science officer. They were both sort of in the command track 
And then what happens is about a in my book, which is set one year before the pilot, is that at the same time, the Shenzhou's executive officer, its first officer, an Andorian, and its second officer, a woman named uh, Itzel Garcia, both leave together at the same time. Uh, the, the former XO is now going to take command of another starship, and he's taking the second officer with him as his new XO. So now the first officer and second officer billets on the Shenzhou are open, up for grabs. And Saru has every reason to think that after everything he's been through and the seniority he has amassed, that he deserves to be in the XO spot. And he would not object whatsoever if Burnham had been installed as second officer. But it works out the other way. She leapfrogs him. She moves into the XO spot ahead of him. He gets put into second officer, which to him is cold comfort. It's like winning the silver medal when you knew you won the race by 10 meters. It doesn't feel good. It's not a comfort. It's an insult. But he right, deals with that's, it. Yeah, and that is what makes that episode three so more powerful when Saru says, first officer, Saru. It's like, aha, I'm where I should have been the first time. Exactly. And I had that in my mind because I had read uh, episode one of three. I think that by the time I finished the last of my revisions on the book in June, I believe they were up to about episode 108 around that time. I think I'd read up through 108. So my book is consistent with the show uh, and reflects what I knew of the characters' arcs and journeys through episode eight of the first season. Yeah, so when you're, of course, you're ahead of us because you know what's coming up in the show because you're writing the book, but you haven't seen any of these episodes or any clips. I mean, you're writing this book based on just script. You hadn't seen the actors act it out. Is that, I mean, that's correct. That That, that is correct. Okay. So I had no, what's the challenge with that? Well, it's a nightmare. (laughs) I mean, all, all I had to work from at the, especially in the early days were just scripts. I had some concept art. I had some sketches I had some schematics that had been drawn of props. I saw some early sketches about the bridge layout and some early concept art on interiors for Shenzhou. And by about the time that I was writing the book, they had finally started production. And I started to see set photography. And I had to modify certain details as I went along. I had to modify my description of Saru after I had already started writing the first third of the book, I had to go back and revise it to reflect how tall he was, to reflect the peculiar nature of his stance because of the way that, you know, his shoes, you know, uh, reflect that kind of hoof-like structure of his feet. I had to revise my description of his threat ganglia, which from the original story outline documents to how they executed the prosthetics, changed dramatically like originally they were in one part of his head then they moved to a different part of his head now they're behind his ears and yada 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 i had to revise my description of the color of his skin uh i didn't know the color of his eyes until i saw the uh screening a couple of weeks ago so if i don't mention the color of his eyes in the book it's because i had no idea what color they were going to settle on his eyes were colored in post in the set photography you can't tell uh, so I, I had no idea. Uh, I had no idea what any of the actors' voices sound like, except for Michelle Yeoh and, to a lesser extent, Sonequa uh, Martin-Green. I, I had a sense of her because I knew her work on uh, The Walking Dead. And, of course, I was a big fan of Michelle Yeoh for many years. Um, 
but most of the rest of the cast, including the minor characters, for instance, I had no idea what they sounded like. I had no idea what I was dealing with. I took my best guess. I tried to match the voices as they were established just in prose within the scripts. I tried to find the whatever the unique ticks were or quirks were to a particular character's dialogue and try to capture that when I would render their character. But uh, yeah, we're working just from scripts and set photography and sketches. Uh, it's particularly nerve wracking because then also as I'm writing the book, new scripts are coming in and not only new scripts, but each individual script can go through anywhere from, you know, four to 12 revisions or more and you're seeing revisions come in constantly. So I'm constantly checking every revision, looking for every little change in every line of dialogue because it can all it takes is one line of dialogue to be changed in a substantial way or even a minor way, and suddenly my continuity is out the window. So I've got to stay on top of every script revision as it comes in because in addition to writing the book and checking all these script revisions to make sure they're not blowing me out of the water, I'm also going through the scripts, flagging things that I think are problematic in terms of Star Trek continuity, Star Trek technology, Star Trek canon. I'm flagging stuff. I'm putting together memos. I send my memos back to Kirsten. Kirsten's taking my memos into the room and she's saying, hey, you know, Dave Mack flagged this, this, and this. Maybe we want to look at this. Half the time the stuff gets fixed, half the time it doesn't for whatever reason. But uh, so I'm constantly in like this back and forth state with the room and it makes the writing of a novel under those conditions is a lot more anxiety ridden than writing a novel manuscript usually is. It makes the process a lot more difficult because you're not standing on solid ground. Premises are changing every week. Backstory is changing every week. Little details that you need to make sure line up for continuity reasons change every week. And even when the final script is done and I've checked my work against the final script every step of the way, what I can't control is that stuff gets changed in post-production in editing. There are scenes that I have in the final draft of like 101 and 102 that I you know, wrote in good faith in the book thinking, okay, well that matches the scene. Good. I've done my due diligence. I saw the finished two part pilot in episode 103 at a screening a couple of weeks ago. And I realized that a scene that I have in my book, which is based on a scene from the final draft of the script for 102 doesn't match the finished episode because they made changes in post-production. They cut an entire character. They cut half of a scene I'm like, but, 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 but that's, that's the heart of my book. What did you do? <laughs> it's gone. And there's just nothing I can do about it. Wow. Well, kind of in, in a similar vein, we get introduced to a lot of really interesting background bridge characters in those first two episodes on the Shenzhou. And most of what we learn about those characters, I think we learn in your book. I was kind of wondering what kind of freedom were you allowed to craft those characters or did a lot of that come from the writer's room and the script? I was given a staggering amount of creative leeway. I was given more leeway than I probably should have been. <laughs> uh, the fact is that uh, very few of those characters on the Shenzhou Bridge had names or even descriptions in the early drafts of the scripts. 
in, I think like the first three or four drafts that I saw after, and this is when we get to production drafts because I wasn't seeing early concept drafts or studio drafts or anything like that. I didn't see stuff until it had been approved by the studio and was being set up for production. Even in early production drafts of the first two episodes, they had con officer, tactical officer, uh, life support officer, engineering officer, operations officer. None of these characters had names. And they just, they had the captain referring to them by their duty station, not by name. And I thought, well, okay, in a TV show to a certain degree, you can get away with that. In a novel, you really can't. I can't have these be faceless job performing automatons on the bridge. It doesn't work. They have to have names, personalities, histories, backstories. I explained this to Kirsten. I said, do I have a certain amount of carte blanche to just create a bridge crew? Even if it doesn't match your bridge crew, can I at least create one that I can use in the books? I'm set a year before the pilot. If my crew doesn't match yours, well, then we'll just say that in the ensuing year, these people transferred off the ship. How about that? She goes, that's fine. Do what you want. Make a crew. So I wrote up a crew, and I did it just the way I did it on the Star Trek Vanguard saga. I wrote a little mini-series Bible, and I spelled out, I started with the characters I knew, Captain Philippa Georgiou, uh, first officer Michael Burnham, science officer, and second officer Saru. I took all the information that Kirsten was able to give me about the characters we knew. I filled that in. I found photos of them in the set photography, plugged those in, so we had photos of them on the bio page. And whatever I was allowed to create, I added little details about the background on Georgiou that uh, Kirsten gave to me from a bio she had written up. Same thing on Michael Burnham. She gave me information that Brian Fuller had written up and stuff on Saru. And then for the rest of the crew, I just started making people up. I made up a communications officer. I made up a junior ops officer. I made up a, you know, a couple other guys. I started filling in names, and then they started casting. And I was sending my bios and my character descriptions to my editor and to Kirsten for approval because Kirsten is the media tie-in coordinator, et cetera, for the show. So she had to sign off on this before I could use these characters. And it was a funny kind of a coincidence where she really loved the bios that I was writing for these minor supporting characters who were just going to be the little people on the bridge. And then she said, well, we started to cast. How would you feel about tweaking some of these names and some of these descriptions to fit our casting? I can send you photos and names of who we're casting. Would you mind adapting the bios to fit casting? I said, I'd be happy to. So she sends me over the info. And so I create, you know, the character of Troy Janutzi, who they changed his name to Yanuzi because nobody could say Janutzi for some reason. Uh, I created Kayla Detmer, the helm officer. I created Cameron Gant, the tactical officer. I decided that the blue guy with the plugs in the back of his head, his name is Troke. And I made up a species. I think they're like a genetic cousin of the Bolians, the Tulians or something crazy like that. Um, and so, and I filled in like, you know, they, they had invented characters like Connor, who in the pilot is ops, but in my book is, you know, a year earlier, he's the captain's yeoman. I describe him as a force of nature. Uh, they gave me Britch Wheaton, who is like the whitest of white bread engineering officers you see in the pilot. He's the really white bread looking bro dude uh, at the back of the bridge. 
but if you read it, he's got this tragic backstory uh, with this whole thing with like his parents separated and fell apart. He's the child of a broken home. And part of what he loves about engineering is that he can put things back together and he can hold together an engineering console and make it work while it's under, while it's on fire. And the only thing, you know, he lives to fix what can't, he lives to fix what can't be fixed. Um, and he, the one thing he can't fix is uh, the missing parts of his family life. So he's got like this tragic story that, you know, I don't even get to in the book. There wasn't time to get to all this stuff in the book, but I write up all these ridiculously detailed character bios for all the members of the Shenzhou bridge crew. And I think, well, no one's ever going to see these. These will never see the light of day. I'll probably not use half of this, but I feel better knowing it's here. Well, it still has to go up the ladder to be approved. So it ends up going up the ladder at the show. Kirsten takes it. It gets approved by the showrunners. And before I know it, she's got permission to share those documents with people on the set. Now the actors I found out from Kirsten got copies of those bios about their characters. Because whereas before, the guy playing the tactical officer, all he knew was he was cast as tactical officer. Now he gets handed a piece of paper with his photo on it and a whole page of text that says, your name is Cameron, you know, you're Cameron Gant. Uh, you're from uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. Your family is this and that. You are gay. You have a, a husband who lives in Venice. The two of you had DNA mixed in a recombinant procedure. You have a daughter. Uh, your interests are this. When you go on landing missions, you collect little bits of soil and water from every alien planet you visit. Uh, your interests are this. Your interests are that. Yada, yada, yada. Like little daft punk robot girl. I decided her name was Jira Narwani. She's the junior tactical officer. Her job is to support Gant as the senior tactical officer. And that crazy helmet she's wearing is a fully immersive 3D tactical theater VR simulator that's supposed to make her aware of pretty much every single object in the theater of operations around the ship. And even though it looks like she's sitting still, she can manipulate this thing with her console and like basically zoom in on anything, move face in any direction without ever herself moving. She's basically the situational awareness of the ship. Uh, you know, and then I've got Kayla Detmer, you know, I established she's from Germany, she's bisexual. She likes all kinds of dance except for tap dancing, which she can't stand. She's adventurous, <laughs> she'll eat anything you put in front of her. Uh, and so on and so on. And the actors got these bios and that's how the actors, that's how the characters got their names on the Shenzhou bridge crew. That's why the bridge crew on the Shenzhou have names. It's because I needed them to have names. The reason they have personas is I needed them to have personas. Uh, and I just got lucky enough that Kirsten liked what I did. She took it. She walked it into the room. And they said, well, it doesn't affect anything else we're doing. We don't care. Sure. Whatever. Give it to the actors if it makes them happy. Well, those actors were probably like, okay, this is really strange. I've done some other shows before where I had a small part and I didn't know anything. And there's a whole bio about a character that we're never even going to explore. But at the same time, I mean, if you put all those bios together, I've heard a lot of people say they would love to see a Shenzhou series. What if we did a novel novels of like five years earlier or three years earlier or whatever that has the Shenzhou troop? It's, that. it's definitely possible. True. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could cast these officers at earlier points in their career. But the one thing, part of the reason I did this, and I'm glad that Kirsten was able to share these documents with the actors, is that part of the actor's craft, the more you know about your character, the more real they become in your mind, 
uh, the more details you have about them, the more it helps inform your performance. Even though you're just supposed to be doing a small turn, just having this knowledge of who you are, of who your character is in the moment, even if it never comes out, it grounds the actor in the moment. It grounds them in the role. It makes them feel real. You're not just con officer anymore. You're con officer Kayla Detmer. You're from Dusseldorf, Germany. You're an adventurous eater. You like dance. Uh, you're bisexual, yada, yada. All these details, they add up in her mind so she can then, she can put this, you know, the actress, uh, for instance, Emily Kusa, I believe is her name, she can take all this information as she will. She can incorporate what parts of it are useful to her as an actor. And she can say, okay, I now have this understanding. I am this person now. I ground myself in this person. And now I'm ready to, to do my job and be in the scene. And it just it allows them to make that mental shift from I am so-and-so the actor to I am so-and-so the character. Well, and as fans, we like all that detail, too. We want to know every bit and piece of every character that we ever see on Star Trek. I mean, that's why we read these novels. We want all these novels because we want all these backstories of things that the shows never even got to explore. And that's what's so great. We're already starting that with the very first novel. And I thought it was interesting, too, because earlier in the conversation, you made a brief mention about Vanguard. I'm doing a a live uh, show uh, on the edge here on Trek FM about discovering. We've had several people make comments about they were reminded of Vanguard when they were watching Discovery. And I had that same thought, too. Did that ever cross your mind? A little bit. I mean, I can see the superficial uh, similarities. You've got both of them are set in the general time frame of the original series. With Vanguard, we were set contemporaneous with the original series. Discovery is 10 years before, but it's a similar era of history. Both have a darker, grittier, uh, more politically realistic feel than the original series did. They're less campy than the original series. Both deal with high technology. Both deal with... Uh, mysteries with some sort of great mystery that a secretive and top secret group of Starfleet specialists has been tasked with investigating, but also with keeping under wraps. And you've got the Klingons involved. The Klingons were a big part of the landscape in Vanguard. And uh, I think that it's a natural comparison, although I think that if you were to start getting down to the nitty gritty of execution, of characters, of character arcs. Uh, I think the two are very different. Uh, I think it's simply an inevitable case of Vanguard was crafted. It was brought to fruition in 2004 was when we started development. It came out in 2005. And it was the product that I had been watching the new Battlestar Galactica series on the Sci-Fi channel. You know, peak television was beginning to happen. Uh, we were starting to see more long-form, serialized narrative in premium cable shows like Battlestar and others. And I wanted to bring a sense of that sensibility to Star Trek with Vanguard. So Vanguard was sort of, you know, again, at the, you know, at the Vanguard of what we were kind of doing with changing what Star Trek is about and how Star Trek is executed in a long-form storytelling mode. And Discovery is just continuing that tradition. It is part of the same creative impulse to update Star Trek on television the way that Star Trek Vanguard updated Star Trek in prose. 
Right. So both were inspired in the same manner. Yes, I think both are a reaction to the shift in the television landscape, the shift in long-form storytelling, uh, a shift toward more uh, grim and realistic uh, depictions of politics, of uh, military consequences, of social orders, uh, of interpersonal conflict. I, I think that the desire to sort of present a more mature and less campy depiction of these things, uh, one that is better suited to the modern television audience uh, or the modern reading audience in the case of Vanguard, I think they both sprang from the same creative impulse and the same reaction to the shift in the media landscape. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but we didn't really get into it, the kind of team-ups that we get between uh, the Shenzhou and the Enterprise. And Spock and Burnham is a, are a really interesting combination. They are kind of essentially mirror images of themselves. We have a Vulcan who attended Starfleet Academy and a human who attended the Vulcan Science Academy. You know, Sarek was not supportive of Spock's entrance into Starfleet, but he encouraged Burnham to join. What was it like? And I know this was kind of, like you said, the impetus for uh, writing this book. What was it like to put these two characters together? And what kind of surprised you the most about putting these characters together? Well, as you said, it was that discovery that the two of them are, in many ways, mirror images of each other. That Burnham, in some respects, reflects this harmonious blending of human emotion and Vulcan logic to which Spock has always aspired. And yet she feels that she has never been able to win Sarek's approval for what she's done. Spock is in much the same boat, but he feels far more conflicted about the reconciling of the two sides of his nature. Then you have the fact that, you know, you have little details in the book like uh, Sarek had always told Burnham that music was a waste of time, whereas he specifically encouraged Spock's pursuit of music, which is curious when you think of music uh, as having an emotional component. Whereas, you know, he would be encouraging Spock to take a more Vulcan approach to life. Why encourage Spock in the pursuit of music, but not Burnham? And then you've got, as you pointed out, the differences in their career tracks. Now, I don't want to say too much because I would be stepping on the toes of the series. The series has plans for this. They are well aware of this, and it does feature into future episodes. So I don't want to uh, go into too much detail about this, but having seen where they were going with it, that did inform some of my choices about what points I wanted to raise between Burnham and Spock and how I chose to let those play out. The thing that I enjoyed most about putting Burnham and Spock together at this point in the Star Trek chronology was that if you look at where Spock was as a character, in The Cage, the original pilot with Jeffrey Hunter, etc. Spock was very emotional. He was almost unhinged at times. His you know, eyebrows sweep way upward. He's shouting every line. You know, when the Telosians take the female officers, he screams, the women! <laughs> you know, it, it's almost ridiculous watching, you know, the, the level to which Spock, uh, you know, overplays every moment. But you get the sense that if you think about it in the context of his history, this is a guy under a lot of stress 
who's barely holding himself together with hope and rusted wire. And somehow he's doing it. And then we get to the end of Desperate Hours after he's had this encounter with Burnham where having interacted with her, he has learned something important, not just about her, but about himself and about their mutual relationship to Sarek. And in some ways, what a kind of a father Sarek has been all along. But he also learned something important about his relationship with his mother that had never been spoken, uh, which Spock had always hoped. You know, he, Spock had never really understood how much his mother loved him. And he always wanted to show his mother how much he loved her, but Vulcan culture didn't allow it. And then he sees, you know, in... Uh, Burnham's memory, all these great moments of affection and devotion that Amanda showed to Burnham, and it raises this specter of resentment in Spock, until what he finally has explained to him by Burnham, she says, don't you understand, those moments were never really for me. The only reason she shared those moments with me was because she couldn't share them with you. She simply had all, she had all this affection, all this love that had nowhere else to go. It didn't go to me because I deserved it. It went to me because she couldn't give it to you. And once Burnham sort of lays that out for Spock and helps him to make his peace with it, number one, Commander Una actually has a comment to Spock at the end of Desperate Hours where she says to him, you seem calmer you seem more centered in yourself. And he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't get into it. But you get the sense that because of this moment of intimate mind-meld connection he has made with Burnham and the truths that it has revealed to him about Sarek, about Amanda, about his relationship with them and her relationship with them and what it all means and what the context is that he didn't have before, it has allowed Spock to find a measure of peace that he did not have with himself and his life. He still has not forgiven his father. He still has a great deal of resentment for the way his father has dealt with him. And to a certain extent, maybe even a degree of resentment now on behalf of Michael for the way Sarek has treated her. It's certainly plausible going forward from this point, as it was stated in uh, Journey to Babel, this is part of why Spock doesn't talk to Sarek for 18 years. They hadn't spoken in 18 years by Journey to Babel. So it's possible that we can see that this moment, although it is important to helping Spock achieve a measure of peace and self-acceptance, it only deepens in some degree his grudge with his father. I, I it was really interesting to me because there is, we talked about sibling rivalry earlier and there's that between Spock and Burnham. Right. And they seem to think the f parents favor one over the other and they're having that same reflection to each other. And I'm also curious more about Sarek, you know, the way Spock resents Sarek, but I also feel Berman kind of, in a sense, also resents Sarek, but for different reasons, or maybe very similar, but it's like Sarek treats them differently. And I don't know, it, you know, I find it interesting that here we have a Vulcan father who's an ambassador that has a child that wants to go to Starfleet Academy and who's half human, half Vulcan. And that's something that he's struggling with. And at the same time, he adopts this other human 
who goes on to the Vulcan Science Academy, but then he encourages her to go to Starfleet when later he resents his son for going to Starfleet. It's like he, it seems like he's almost playing games with them. And I start to wonder at the same time, is he, I don't want to, I, I can't spoil anything for you. I'm just going to tell you, keep watching discovery. This is an actually, this is a key point that they're going to address with the Sarek character. The reasons for those decisions, the reasons why those decisions seem to be contradictory, but are really not, is all going to be explained. I cannot tell you why. I cannot tell you how. I will not tell you in what episode it will happen. <laughs> I will tell you that these are valid questions. You are right to ask them. They are questions that obviously were raised within the writer's room and served as the foundation for upcoming stories, including what I think are some of the best episodes of the first season, at least in terms of their emotional impact. So, I cannot answer those questions for you now, and I don't want to speculate upon them because I don't want to do anything that could step upon or spoil what is coming up in future episodes. I will tell you that your questions will be addressed, and I'm hoping that you will find the answers as satisfying as I did. And once you see how they play out and you understand the full context of how they played out, you will, as I did, go... Oh my God, of course. Well, let's not get into it right now. I don't want to speculate because even if you guess right, I can't tell you if you're right. So let's just, <laughs> so let's just move on from that. Well, okay, to, we'll to coin on. a phrase, yeah. fascinating. That's, that's cool. I'm really looking forward to that. Great stuff coming. The first season of this show is just so good. Everybody on this show basically brought their A game. Uh, it, it just gets better and better. And wait until you see Kirsten Byers' episode. If the... If the show executes as well as the script, I mean, her script was amazing. Her script actually made me cry. It was beautiful. The ending of the script is, is heartbreaking. I'm hoping that the production team and the editing team and the post team and everybody, I'm hoping they execute that script on the screen as well as she wrote it on the page. If they do their jobs as well as she did hers, there won't be a dry eye in the house on 108. Excellent. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm literally giddy here right now hearing that. So, uh, yeah. And I don't feel like I can say anything anymore now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to squelch you like that. That, that. that wasn't my intention. I'm sorry. No, no, but I did have one theory, but you're right. I don't even want to say it now because you can't even answer it anyway. Not that I expected, but I, just right. I, 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 I can't tell you if you're right. I can't tell you if you're right. And I can't tell you if you're wrong. Right. I wasn't even expecting that. I just was. I mean, know, I guess, I, I, mean, I guess you could speculate and I'll just listen. No, I don't <laughs> want to do that because I want you to participate, but you can't because you know the answers. And so I don't want you to participate in that speculation. In a way, that is the single hardest thing about uh, this collaborative process that I've had with the Discovery team. It's been amazing. I feel uh, more involved and more respected as a media tie in author working for a show than I think any media tie-in author has ever felt working for any show. I don't know that any show has ever gone to the lengths that the Discovery team has to make me feel heard, to help incorporate what I've been doing into their efforts, and to help make sure that my efforts track with theirs. At the same time, it means that I'm privy to all these secrets that I cannot divulge under pain of death. There's a CBS sniper who I'm sure follows me 24-7 waiting for me to cross the line and then he'll just 
put a bullet right through my head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to say on the other side of that, as media tie-in readers, we feel incredibly respected too, that they're putting in that effort and creating these, these close ties between the show and the, the media product. Uh, It's, it's, overwhelming like it's really cool this relationship between the two of them and like you say i don't i can't think of any other time that that any other show has done something like this it's one of the greatest strokes of good luck that they hired kirsten Beyer of all people onto the writer's staff and understood uh in this new media landscape you know it, i mean because if you look back like star trek enterprise for instance hired on judy garfield and judy reeve stevens who were well established as novelists and as star trek novelists and who understood the publishing side but even enterprise did not make this effort to reach out and integrate itself with the publishing team because i think at that point the relationship between show and the media tie-in side had already been in existence for so long and was taken for granted that it simply was the way it was. In many respects, it needed this prolonged break of 12 years between the end of Enterprise and the launch of Discovery in order to make this completely clean break with the way things used to be and the way they used to operate to allow a new team, a younger team, one that's uh, you know social media savvy, that's internet savvy, that understands uh, that you know fan response uh, is almost immediate to media tie-in products and to the uh, core media product as well, and to, the, we just got lucky that they hired Kirsten of all people, and that she was able to get through to them and explain. Look, one of the biggest pitfalls that happens with media tie-ins, especially the first media tie-in related to a property like this, is often it is written in a vacuum and it feels like a tonal or continuity mismatch to the show it's based on. It's often comical to a certain degree, the way that the first Next Generation novel feels like a total mismatch to Next Generation. The way the first official DS9 original novel feels like a mismatch to DS9, and so on and so forth. And it happened to all of them, except for the original series where the original tie-in started well after the show was over. But with all of the you know more recent shows, this had been an endemic problem. And they just got lucky in that Kirsten was able to raise that problem for them early on and say, we don't want to fall into the same trap. We want you know what CBS wants. We want a well-integrated uh, multimedia push. We want to be on streaming media. We want to be on TV. We want our books, our comics, and our video games to all sync up with what we're doing. We all want to be on the same page. We want a unified message, unified style, unified vocabulary. And we got lucky that the people in the room said, yes, you're right. That is exactly what we want. We want our books and our comics and our video games to feel like they are part of our show. That is what we want. Make it happen. And so we did. Well, speaking of integration and unified styles and that sort of thing, um, I, I found it really interesting and I really enjoyed your explanation for, and yeah, we're going to talk about this, the different looks of the Shenzhou crew and the Enterprise crew and the, the technology and the way the ships look and the uniforms. And I wanted to know, was it difficult to come up with a plausible reason for the differences? Because I, I personally think you did like that. Your explanation works for me 
was it kind of hard to try and reconcile that and figure that aspect out? The hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, as a tie-in writer, reconciling canonical differences or apparent canonical differences is one of those things where as a tie-in writer, you, you learn, you see it, and instead of getting angry about it the way a fan does, you look at it and you go, oh, that's a story possibility. How do I explain that? What do I do with that? And uh, I mean, I admit when I first started seeing concept sketches and concept art coming out of the art department, I had those moments where I'm like, really? You're not going to try and pick up the uniforms from the Abrams film? So, I mean, at least they got the right they got the right colors. You sure you don't want to try that? No, you're going to go blue jumpsuits. All right, you're going with blue jumpsuits. Fine. Okay. What about these ship designs? Really? You're going to go with that? All right. That doesn't look like it's appropriate to the period, but we'll roll with it. Fine. So then I get the job of having to write this tie-in novel. And the problem that I can bumped up against immediately, and I raised the issue to uh, three people all at the same time. Those three people were my editor, Margaret Clark, Kirsten Beyer, the media tie-in coordinator for the show, and John Van Sitters, the head of CBS product licensing for Star Trek. And I said, here's my dilemma. Either, as I do this Shenzhou Enterprise team-up, either I describe both ships using the same aesthetic, which is clearly wrong because either I'm describing Shenzhou with an enterprise aesthetic, which anybody watching Discovery realizes is incorrect, or I describe enterprise as though it has a Discovery aesthetic, which any longtime fan of Star Trek knows is wrong and is going to flag me on, or I've got each ship looking pretty much close to the way we remember, but now I have to reconcile the two. Which way do you guys think I should go? And I said, and the same argument applies to the uniforms, the technology, the phasers, the tricorders, uh, the weaponry installed on both ships. So do you guys want me to honor discovery and only discovery? Do you want me to tie discovery into the literary continuity by honoring only the original series aesthetic? Or do you want me to rationalize an explanation for marrying? And the answer across the board was, if you can find a way to have them both coexist in the same universe, go for it. So I sat down and I'm like, all right, well, once I've been given the marching orders, now I go to work and I start doing some research and I realize, okay, dialogue in the episode, I think 102, Giorgio says specifically when she first welcomes Burnham aboard, Shenjo is old. She implies the ship is decades old. It is not top of the line. It is a workhorse that has seen decades of service, refits. Uh, this is an old workhorse of a ship, as opposed to the Enterprise, which is a Constitution class. At this point, it's still maybe at most 10 years old. It's the crown. It's one of the crown jewels of Starfleet. It's one of the 12 Constitution class ships. These were the rock star ships of this period of Starfleet history. These are the ships everybody wants to serve on. So I'm like, okay, let's assume that Shenzhou is maybe 50, 60 years old. Enterprise is barely 10 years old and, you know, is, uh, represents the apex of Starfleet tech at this time. How do I reconcile the fact that Shenzhou has holograms, holographic comm technology, 
whereas enterprise is still using a flat view screen. How do I get around that? And I realized, well, first of all, we know from, it even says in the scripts, the holograms are glitchy. They have little dropouts. They sometimes drop you know, moments of time. They, they, they stutter. I'm like, okay, this is clearly an imperfect, immature technology. So what I have, and there's, it's basically done as a throwaway line from the point of view of a civilian who's hacking into Shenzhou's comms, holographic comms are data hogs, and they're also insecure. They have crap encryption. They're, they're easier to break. They're bandwidth hogs. They're basically a pain in the ass. Enterprise doesn't use them. Sure, it only has a flat screen display, but it is secure and it is fast and it works much better over long distances. Basically, you've sacrificed 3D for 2D, but you've gotten better security and faster transmission time. And really, who needs the freaking hologram on your deck, uh, on your bridge anyway? So that's how I get around the hologram. And then, for instance, the difference in weapons tech. At one point early, I think in uh, the first episode, in, in uh, Vulcan Hello, Shenzhou, uh, Burnham ref refers to she uh, Shenzhou's weapons as phase cannons. So they're still using like enterprise era phase cannons, probably a pretty good version of them. I was told to change it to phasers when I was writing the book. It's sort of inconsistent. I got mixed messages on that one. I did the best I could to reconcile it. But I address this by having a moment where in the final battle in the book, where they're battling with the Leviathan, Shenzhou crew fires off its weapons. They think they've landed a really great hit. They're feeling really proud of themselves. Then they watch this blue beam from the, from the Enterprise's phasers just carve off a chunk of the enemy ship. And they all just look at it like, holy sh**, what did we just see? <laughs> Enterprise's phasers can do that? It's like that moment of reverence and awe on the part of the Shenzhou crew realizing, holy f the Enterprise is amazing. We are completely outclassed. Oh, my God. I loved that moment. That was a I, I was grinning at that point. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's the, the feeling they should have. I mean, regardless of whether you say one is old, one is new, one looks like it's more advanced. The fact is that the characters in universe, I said, I'm going to address this by having the Shenzhou characters show the appropriate degree of reverence and awe for the power and the majesty of a constitution class starship. That is the sort of thing that in universe, those characters, when they're confronted with a constitution class ship, the jaw should just hang open. It should just be one of those moments where you're like, wow, that thing is power and beauty incarnate. Wow. So that was sort of how I got around that. The uniform thing was actually remarkably easy. I did a little bit of research. I talked to some friends who were, you know, have more military experience than I do. And it turns out that there's plenty of real world precedent for stuff like this. Real world militaries at any given moment, any given military probably has anywhere from three to six duty uniform variants that are approved for use. There isn't just one uniform standard. Most militaries have anywhere from three to six or even a dozen. Plus, most militaries have special uniforms that are set aside for elite units, special units, diplomatic units. Uh, I mean, for instance, classic example, the Green Berets. Green Berets, right there. These, they have their own special uniform code. They wear the beret. They have a special dress uniform. They don't look like anybody else in the service. They're one unit. 
So if you can have a special unit like Green Berets that have a whole uniform under themselves, why not say that the crews of the 12 Constitution-class starships, the 12 most revered and powerful ships in the fleet, they get the special duty uniforms. They get the diplomatic uniforms, the cool ones with like, you know, the nice turtlenecks and the, the new trousers and the shiny boots. They get the really good looking ones. The rest of us have to wear these stupid blue jumpsuits. <laughs> but man, they, they get the nice sweaters. Those are, I bet those are even more comfortable than what we're wearing. They don't have zippers. Yeah, we have pockets, but they don't have zippers. <laughs> well. I'm glad we're having a clothing conversation about zippers and pockets now. <laughs> no, but the uniforms, I, I like that reasoning uh, mm -hmm. because I, we, we kind of saw that also with uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. They had different uniforms. Yeah. I mean, you had, uh, even within uh, DS9, there were different units, like different Starfleet crews would come on board and they'd be wearing the Next Gen style uniforms. And then the DS9 crew would have their uniforms. And I even saw an article about this recently, I think on Star Trek.com or maybe another site, which actually had a breakdown of the different insignia. Like there's this thing that has a lot of fans up in arms about why does the Discovery crew have the Arrowhead Delta insignia? Only the Enterprise crew had that. Well, actually, no. According to memos that were sent by Bob Justman to William Ware Thice during the production of the original Star Trek series, the Arrowhead was actually for Starship personnel. Not just Enterprise personnel, all Starship personnel. There were different insignia for personnel on merchant marine vessels. There were different insignia for Starbase personnel. There were different insignia for a fleet admiral on field duty as opposed to a, an admiral or a commodore on Starbase duty. But then there was like one screw up, I think, where they used the wrong insignia for somebody, I think, either in Tholian Web or some other episode. And it got cited as like precedent. But in fact, the memo that was cited specifically had, uh, I think it was actually from an earlier episode, it had the producers calling out the costume designer saying, that is not correct. You know, don't do that again. So the Delta, you know, the Arrowhead Delta, although there was, you know, some visual information that suggested each ship had its own insignia, uh, that was actually considered an art department or costuming department screw up. Uh, in fact, it was the intention on the part of the producers during the original series that all Starship crews had the Delta, had the Arrowhead. So it's actually not a mistake on the part of Discovery that the Arrowhead uh, Delta is in full use by 2255. Well, you know, it, it's really interesting trying to tie all those things together. And it's very plausible, everything you've said. And I mean, that's that's what I'm thinking now when I think about the two different shows, when I think of The Cage and when I think of Discovery and even the original series and how it will all tie in together. But, you know, uh, one thing we didn't really get that much into is the overall storyline of your novel is there anything you want to tell us about the whole story about the you know the drilling down in this alien vessel and so on and so forth where did, where did you get those ideas from to come up with the story well obviously i think the bp oil disaster in the gulf several years ago informed that choice i wanted there to be this clash between the colonists and the people coming to rescue them the idea that you want to call for help but you know that on some level you're a criminal and if you call for help you're going to jail so I had the situation where they have this history of falsified reports. They've covered up the fact that they know there was probably a, uh, 
prehistoric indigenous culture. They know that if this gets revealed, they won't be allowed to do their mining operations. So they bury the information and they go on with their mining and they're looking for, you know, various minerals and rare deposits and whatever. And they think they found a particularly rich vein of this and they drill into it. What they've actually drilled into is an alien living starship uh, that they wake up and which runs amok and starts destroying things. And they end up having to call in Starfleet for help. Um, it's, you know, a, a pretty straightforward science fiction plot as that goes. The idea that I had was the notion that this thing is sort of a, a cultural tester. It was sent out by something called the Turanian Dynasty. And uh, it looks for sub, you know, worlds that would be potentially good imperial subjects. Uh, and those that have something to offer, such as people with talents that make them useful as soldiers, diplomats, spies, whatever, it tests them to see whether or not these are people that should be brought in and subjected to service. And if they'll serve, great. You put them under your flag. And if they say no, well, then they're a threat. And you annihilate them. So it's pretty straightforward, I have to admit, as a science fiction plot. The heart of the story is rooted less in the uh, uniqueness of the threat and more in the revelations and, and what it brings out in our characters and what they learn about each other. One aspect of the story, actually, I really liked, and, and like we said, we're spoiling the whole thing, talking about the ending here, was uh, when the, the colonists take the Starship uh, medical teams hostage. Right. And it, it almost doesn't get touched on after that point. Um, and I really almost kind of liked what that said about Starfleet because if they have to sacrifice this entire planet the thinking of the colonists colonists is well you won't do that we're taking these guys hostage and you'll have to kill them too and it it's not even really addressed it's almost a given the the crews are like yeah we know don't worry like yeah, this, we're probably is... all going to go down fighting anyway but sure you want to hold our medical teams hostage that's great exactly yeah and i i loved the um and I, I, I don't know if this is the right term, but the non-issue that it almost is. I thought that was a nice touch. I, I deliberately chose to have that particular story thread result in an anticlimactic ending. And the reason I chose that, I, I mean, I suppose I could have put in one more scene, and maybe I should have, where after the starships have negated the alien threat and have you know saved the day, as it were, I could see that maybe some other, you know, hothead among the uh, hostage takers could say, all right, now we start asking for demands. At which point I would have just said, you know, I would have had the governor, Governor Kolova, look at this person and say, are you out of your mind? We just got everything we asked for. We asked them to save the colony. They saved the colony. We asked them to save our lives. They saved our lives. We asked them to defeat the undefeatable thing, and they defeated the undefeatable thing. Now... I would like to point out to you, there's only a hundred of us with assorted meager small arms and improvised devices. There are two fully armed Starfleet vessels in orbit full of military personnel with heavy grade military weaponry. Do you really want to get into a, a, a shooting standoff with these people? We will lose. By the way, they've already got us dead to rights. They've already got all the evidence they need. Any of us who make it out of here alive are going to jail. We might as well just accept it. 
We got everything we asked for. We gained nothing at this point by protracting the standoff. And the best thing we can possibly do right now is lay down the weapons and walk out. We got everything we asked for. Do your time and just, just suck it up. Now, I suppose I could have put that scene in, but it seemed to me like the sort of thing where, given the, specific, the specificity of the colonists' demands and the fact that we see those demands are all explicitly met, at that point I thought, wouldn't it be great just once to have the people go, all right, we got what we wanted. Fine, we surrender. We're walking out. And then we just have like the one little joke about the guy whose face gets beat in by the dentist. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. What, I, what, I, what I love is that little moment where, you know, you know, someone explains to Pike, you know, what Pike says, a medic did that? Uh, it was a dentist. Oh, all right. Wait, what was a dentist doing on a landing party? And Georgie says, I have no idea. <laughs> Will that be episode 109 that centers on the dentist, do you think? I don't think we're ever going to see the dentist. <laughs> I think that's highly unlikely. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, you know, we've been talking for quite a while. Actually, I feel like we could go on all night, but we, we probably should wrap it up soon. The last thing I just kind of want to bring up, what, in your opinion, does Star Trek Discovery live up to being Star Trek? Huh. Well, I mean, it really does get into strange new worlds, strange technologies, strange civilizations. But what it really seems to be about, and I, I hate to crib their own answer, but they're right about this, is that sometimes the greatest journeys of discovery are the journeys we take within. And what discovery is about as a series, it's about Burnham discovering the truth about her own past about her life, who she is, what she's capable of, uh, what her life has meant, what the people in her life uh, have meant. Uh, for Saru, it's about realizing and discovering his own potential as a leader, uh, his ability to overcome his fear, to overcome his innate nature and choose his own destiny. Uh, and then as from some of the characters we meet in 103 going forward, Tilly is going to learn that uh, she has more agency in her life than she thinks. Uh, Stamets and his partner are going to discover things about themselves, their relationship. Uh, again, not to spoil anything, but Stamets is also on a journey of literal physical discovery uh, with his mycelial networks and the technology that he's developing and the places that that's going to take our ship and our crew. Uh, the Klingons, in a certain respect, are even on a journey of metaphysical and philosophical discovery as they are going to have to discover what it means to unify the empire, uh, to let go of the sort of uh, dastardly ways that they take for granted, which you know have ample uh, precedent in the original series, and start themselves on what's going to be a very long and difficult path toward a more honor-driven empire that we know of from the 24th century. That's a transformation that cannot happen overnight, but we're going to see them begin that journey of discovery as a culture uh, in discovery. So I think that what makes discovery most Star Trek is the fact that it is about people uh, confronting the unknown in themselves and also outside themselves and being willing to be changed by what they learn and what they do. 
and being changed by other people. And uh, I think just basically having that hope that we can be better, that there is a better choice. They're going to have to go to some dark places. They're going to have to make some mistakes. They're going to have to face the darkness before they can make a stand in the name of hope. But often, you know, that's the way it goes. I mean, that was true of the Star Trek Vanguard series. And I think that's part of why I'm so willing to sort of play this long game with Discovery and take this long trip with them is that I did a similar long journey in Star Trek Vanguard. And I know how hard it is because you have to establish your characters starting from a place where they are flawed, where they have made mistakes, where they have things for which they must atone. And uh, very often you risk alienating some viewers or putting them off and you'll have people who say, oh, well, that's not Star Trek. That's not hopeful. That's pretty depressing. But what you don't realize is that unless you are willing to embrace the darkness, the flaws, the mistakes, and face them honestly, you can't move past them to find what's better. A character who starts out you know, a character who starts out good and uh, perfect and making no mistakes might be noble and might seem like the epitome of Star Trek, but it's bad drama and it gives you no place to go. And it, ultimately, as a story, it teaches us nothing. A story that's about someone whose heart was in the right place, but they got they went about it the wrong way, and now they have to find a new mode of living, a new mode of action, which will allow them to redeem themselves and to leave their situation better than they found it. In my opinion, that's very Star Trek. I Wow, that's absolutely perfect. And uh, I can't wait until we know as much about Discovery as you do. So this is really exciting. <laughs> yeah, and what are those things you know about that you're not telling? <laughs> oh, you know, the usual things. The funny looking things. <laughs> the usual we kind of funny looking <laughs> One one final quick little question, and it's a question that I think we all know the answer to, but it's one that continually gets asked on Facebook groups that I'm in, and and we get asked this a lot, and we let's get the definitive answer out there right now. Is your novel, Desperate Hours, canon? No, it is not. Thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, we... We wrote it as in as close a conjunction with the show as we could. We try to make it mesh as seamlessly with the show as we can. But the reality is that if at some point, like I, I could only modify the book up until about episode 108. At that point, because of the nature of print publishing, my book was locked and had to go to the printer. They still had seven episodes left to write. So if the producers got an idea in their head and it revised, you know, it involved revising some detail or expanding on some detail not previously shown, and that detail either contradicts or, you know, adds information, uh, you know, in a later episode that I didn't have access to, well, there's no way my book can reflect that. That's the way it is. And the show has to come first. The show... The show is the show. The book is there to supplement the show, to enhance your appreciation of the show. It is not there to tell the show what to do. That's not my job. I don't tell the show what to do. Books don't tell the movies what to do. We are there to add value to them. 
but we are not there to limit their potential or limit their choices. That is not our place. However, your book can inspire the show to do certain things. Well, let's hope. I mean, I would, uh, I know that copies of the book uh, are with members of the writing staff. I know that Anthony Rapp, who plays Stamets, uh, is reading it. I know that there's a copy that was given to Sonequa Martin-Green. Um, I know that different members of the room have read it. Uh, I can't name names, but I know there was at least one member of the room who was extremely frustrated by it because it means I took the idea he wanted to do for an episode. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, my hope would be that the... If, there, if there's anything in my book that the team in the room can look at and say, that'd be really great. Maybe we could pull that detail and incorporate that into a future episode and canonize that detail. Even if they pull, like, let's say, this detail and that detail or whatever from my book and it somehow makes it onto screen and that particular fact becomes canon, that does not canonize my book. It just means those particular facts become canon. The rest of the book still remains just the book. But it's okay, because canon does not mean good. Canon is not synonymous with good. Canon just means this is the core body of work with which derivative works must remain consistent at the time they are created. That is all canon means. Canon does not mean perfectly in continuity. Plenty of elements of the canon contradict each other, from original series to next-gen to DS9. There are multiple self-contradictions within canon. Canon does not mean continuity. Canon does not mean quality. There are plenty of episodes that are 100% canon that are awful, <laughs> just awful. I know I'm probably not supposed to say that in public, but it's true. There are some episodes of Star Trek that just did not turn out the way their creators had hoped. We all know it. <coughs> Move along home. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. The episode Sub Rosa exists, so your argument is valid. <laughs> right. So canon does not mean quality. It doesn't mean good. It doesn't mean uh, free of continuity error. It just means this was a piece of live-action official film entertainment that serves as the core body of work with which derivative works have to remain consistent. That is all canon means. Canon should actually mean nothing to fans. Fans don't have to care about canon. Canon does not affect anything you do as a consumer. As a consumer, you can enjoy any aspect of Star Trek, whether it's comic books, novels, short stories, fan fiction, art, whatever enhances your love and appreciation for the stories that are told, enjoy it and pretend that it's real and find a way in your own head to reconcile it and make it all work, that's great. The only people who have to worry about what canon is are people like me who have chosen to embrace the madness of trying to create derivative <laughs> but officially licensed works. Like a lawyer, I have to be able to cite chapter and verse and precedent and explain my choices to the licensing department and my editor and the show. I have to be able to, you know, show that I have precedence for the things that I'm doing. If you're a fanfic writer, you don't have to worry about that. You don't care what canon is. You shouldn't have to. You don't have to. Forget about it. It doesn't affect you. If you're just someone who wants to love the stories that you read and you want to pretend they all happened, or this one happened and that one didn't, you know what? Go ahead. It's okay. Nobody gets to tell you which stories you want to believe. You could watch an episode of a Star Trek series and go, 
I don't buy that for a second. That's crap. I'm going to pretend that one didn't happen. You as a consumer have that right. You can do that. I, as someone trying to work from that body of canon, I can't choose to ignore it. I can't pretend that didn't happen. I have to work around it and make excuses. You don't have to. You can love Star Trek any way you want to love Star Trek. From your lips to every fan's ears, thank you for that. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yes, I'm very pleased with that answer because that's what I try to tell people, but I don't do it as well as you do. So I'm glad you said <laughs> that. I'm just going to have to re- keep that recording and play it. So Lots, lots of practice. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> yes. You know, one of my favorite parts of the book, since we're ending the show now, and I, I, and I think I speak for Dan too, we really enjoyed the novel, uh, and it really ties in well with Discovery. But Thank one you. thing, one thing I like about it, you know, at the end of the show, we then ask the authors if they have something else coming out. And, you know, the very last page of your books has the about the author section. And that's where you get this, like, you know, bibliography of just all the works and a bio about the person. Yours is David Mack wants you to buy his novel, The Midnight Front. <laughs> I, well, I wanted to get right to the point and I didn't want it to get lost. <laughs> it didn't get lost on me. <laughs> Yeah, so I, actually, I guess you have I, that. I, I, I've been doing really short author bios in my Star Trek books for several years now, and most people don't seem to notice them. They say things like David Mack performs his own stunts, David Mack abides, David Mack remains a fugitive from justice, David Mack remains a mystery to science, David Mack. Uh, I think I have, I have a uh, Titan novel coming out in two months. Uh, called Fortune of War, and my about the author page, and that just says David Mack is, and then it's a black bar with white type that says redacted. Uh, but yeah, essentially, uh, the one thing I am plugging, uh, aside from my Titan novel, Fortune of War, coming November 28th, if you're a fan of the Star Trek Titan series or Next Gen, Riker, Troy, etc., pick that up. That's a fun callback to the Next Generation. It's a sequel to an episode called The Survivors where a creature called a Dowd, posing as a guy named Kevin Uxbridge, uh, acting out of grief or whatever over his dead wife, Rashawn, killed by the Husnag, with a thought, he exterminated all Husnag everywhere in the galaxy, all 50 billion of them. The thing is, he killed all the Husnag. He didn't blow up their planets. He didn't blow up their ships. He didn't destroy their technology. He just killed the Husnag. All of their stuff is still sitting out there. These are this is a species that has tech that hooks planets into into ashes. This is some seriously bad stuff. You don't want this stuff just sitting out there waiting for some knucklehead to find it. Unfortunately for Starfleet, a bunch of knuckleheads have found it. And it is now up to the heroic crew of the Titan to make certain that the stuff found by the knuckleheads uh, is contained and does not wind up wreaking galactic havoc. But The Midnight Front, which readers of Desperate Hours will notice is the only thing I'm plugging on my About the Author page, that comes out on January 30th, 2018. That is a passion project many years in the making. That is the beginning of my new dark art series coming from Tor Books. It is contemporary modern fantasy, uh, part secret history. The first book is set during World War II, and it is a combination of War Epic with Black Magic and Revenge. And it follows a young man named Cade Martin, an American studying at Oxford. At the beginning of the war, he and his family try to evacuate England. The Nazis sink the ship. Uh, A demon comes out of the water, kills his parents. And this is how he learns that magic is real. So on a mission of revenge, 
he signs up for something called the Midnight Front, which is the top secret black magic warfare unit of the Allied forces being run uh, out of England. He ends up learning black magic, becomes an operator behind the lines, uh, and basically fights a secret war behind the real World War II that we know. So the, the first book is this big war epic. The second book, which I am actually writing at the moment, I'm closing in on the, the end part of uh, book two, Book two is titled The Iron Codex, and that's going to be a spy thriller set in 1954, again, with black magic. And book three, for which I already have a contract to tour, is called The Shadow Commission. That's set in 1963, right after the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy. And that's going to be kind of a conspiracy paranoia thriller, where the governments of the world turn against the magicians they've been secretly employing for two decades and try to have them all killed. Uh, my hope is that these three books, which are, as I said, a passion project of mine that I've spent many years on, I'm hoping that they will find a receptive audience and uh, that it will become an ongoing series where I will explore different eras of geopolitical history. Uh, and the idea is that each book in the series could be a different kind of book. So I do war epic, spy thriller, conspiracy piece. And then maybe after that, I do a, a crime heist uh, piece. Maybe I do a, uh, a corporate, uh, you know, espionage book. Maybe I do a, a road, you know, movie where it's, uh, you know, a drug-fueled uh, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, you know, binge story of some kind. The, the possibilities are maybe not endless, but they are quite diverse. Yeah, seriously, listeners, go out and, like, this sounds really cool. Go pre-order The Midnight Front now. Uh, I did, and uh, it looks amazing. So, yeah. And if you're looking for more information about it before you make your decision, you can go to midnightfront.com. I've built a website all about the new Dark Arts series and the first book, the system of magic that I'm using, because it's all based on uh, the control of demons. And Basically, if you want to learn about the characters and the series and see where I'm going with it, visit midnightfront.com. All right. And if people want to find you online, how can they find you? Well, they can go to my official website, davidmack.pro. That's davidmack, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedavidmack. Or you can find me on Twitter at David Allen, A-L-A-N, Mack, M-A-C-K. Well, thank you for joining us. Again, really enjoyed the book. Mm-hmm. Seconded on that one for sure. And uh, we'll probably talk to you next time about uh, Titan. Yep. I suspect it won't be very long before we're talking again. You know, over the past few months, we've done the first novels of each of the respective Star Trek series, but it's so rare to get the opportunity to do the first novel of a new series that's actually a brand new novel and a brand new series. What a great time to be a fan of Star Trek and a fan of the Star Trek novels. I think this novel is one of the most appropriate novels to be termed a tie-in because it's not just a novel that's tied into the series. The author was tied in with the writers and the creators of the series to make sure it all worked. And so that's very unusual mm -hmm. when it comes to, especially in Star Trek, I don't think it's ever been that closely connected between the novelist 
and the show creators. No, it's definitely something that's very unique. And man, the more we talked to David Mack, the more I thought like, what a great opportunity that must be. But also like he talked about with the press and stuff, it's got to be a little overwhelming as well. Yeah. And uh, he's not the only one because then we're going to get a second discovery novel after the new year and written by Dayton Ward. So he's kind of in the same boat that David has just gone through. So it'll be interesting to hear about that book when it comes out. And uh, when we have Dayton on, I just assume Dayton will come on, (laughs) but uh, you know, just kind of hear about his experiences too. Yeah. I don't know. Can we book Dayton? Does he ever come on this show? I'm I'm not sure. Uh, Yeah. Um, He may not come on the show, that often but he's here on the show all the time (laughs) if that makes sense to anybody if you listen to past episodes you'll know what we're talking about but Dayton Ward isn't the only thing we're talking about (laughs) there's other things we're talking about here on the network so here's a quick look at those other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM previously on Trek.FM the 602 Club and this is happening a lot more in the Star Wars books, and I, I think it's because it allows them freedom, which is to do books that become character studies. And I think it's very clear that this book, in a lot of ways, is a character study of who this person is and what it is that causes the actions that we see in The Force Awakens to make more sense. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. By getting people like Braga to come on board and work on this show, what they're going to be doing is deconstructing that that thing that they did for all those years on Star Trek. Earl Grey. Is there anything else we need to add, or do we think that's the... Are we going to cure Riker? Or... <laughs> oh, shoot, I forgot about Riker. Yeah, sure, fine, we'll keep him around. Yeah, we've cured Riker. And then uh, for, for me, this would, yeah, or, or not. <laughs> Meta Trex. Troy's quarters, Data's quarters. They're very Spartan. They're very Spartan. In fact, Data's girlfriend even says they're Spartan, right? Yes, yes. And so what does she do? She brings him stuff. A trinket to fill it up. To, to fill it up. <laughs> And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. So if you'd like to keep the shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm. And perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there. And you also get to be a member of our special patrons website, Patron Zone. And so it takes a lot of money to host and produce and distribute these shows. So we really appreciate any support you can give us. Again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the conversation is in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to Bruce and I. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And if you like to read books and read reviews of books or even post your own reviews, you can do that at goodreads.com. And in Goodreads, we have a readers group of literary treks. So just go into Goodreads and search for literary treks and then hit or click join group and we'll let you write in. And there you can see what we've reviewed, uh, what's coming up on future shows. It's a good way to see what we're doing in the literary treks universe. And we'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatola, and Justin Ozer for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not running around trying to decide which uniform, Discovery or Enterprise to put on, where can people find you? I mean, it's so tough. Comfortable pullover or weird flashy thing with little symbols all over. I, I really don't know. But when I'm not trying to figure that out, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kertrets. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Productions, Facebook.com slash Productions, And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference. And Bruce, when you're not navigating the insides of a weird alien spacecraft, mind melding, and trying to get around weird tests, where can we find you? I feel like this probe is testing me right now. And I guess when I'm being tested, I feel like I need to tell you where I am. So you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the Trek FM network doing our live from the edge show where we talk about discovery on Monday evenings, right after the premiere on Sundays. And that's with Brandy Jackala and uh, check it out. It also is released as a podcast and uh, you can hear me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast at StarWarsReport.com. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference, too, with Dan. We're just always happy to talk to everybody in the Babel Conference about Star Trek stuff. <laughs> so thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.